Amen. Good morning, Scots. How are you doing this morning? <laughs> uh, Grant, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to come and share God's Word with you. And I'm so excited to be here, and I hope we can all be blessed together on this uh, chilly morning. Now, I'm going to ask all of us to stand one more time, as we usually do at my church at New City Eastlake. We love to honor the reading of God's Word, and I've chosen 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through uh, 22 to be our text uh, in this sermon that I'm titling, Give Us a King. I'm only going to read the first nine verses. Hear now the reading of God's Word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do ask for your blessings as we consider your word this morning. Grant us wisdom, open our ears that we may hear you, and help us to be transformed by its power. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. A couple of days ago, I read an article by one Brad Jones. As he titled the article, The Church of Individualism. And he tells in that article a story of a man in Colorado who, uh, whose uh, neighborhood hired a tree trimming service, uh, but they refused to prune one of the trees that was in his front, front yard. And the argument was it was a pear tree and, and fruit trees were not included on the fees that they were supposed to give. And so the man was confused and he explained to the tree trimming, trimming company that this, this pear tree had never borne a, a fruit in the seven years that he had lived there. Not even a single fruit. And then the people said to him, that's because it's a domesticated pear tree. He said, come again? It's a domesticated pear tree. See, domesticated fruit trees have fruit-bearing genes that have been bred out of their DNA so that they could be visually pleasing when you look at them, but conveniently maintained without a whole lot of effort. And so this man continues to argue, he says, domesticated suburbanites wanted a fruit tree, read king, without the fruit, the kingdom, and literally remade it in their own image. This man continues to argue, he says, quote, secularism is not the root of the problem that we have today, but the inevitable fruit of an individualism that is cultivated within a domesticated church that is more interested in maintaining manicured lifestyles than exploring the messy inconvenience of the kingdom. Now, whether you agree with this guy or not, I, I, I may not, 
is not really the issue. But what I want us to consider this morning in, in just a few minutes is this. Something that's worth exploring for us. Are we guilty of domesticating God? Do we ever desire man-made kingdoms, man-made kings that we can control for ourselves and not desiring to have a savior king who reigns supremely over all the affairs of our life? See, the story that I just read to you is the story of Israel demanding to have a king just like any other nations. And in here, the story of Israel is really our story. And he, this, is how, this is how we domesticate God. This is how we seek for the wrong kings. The first thing that we do, and as we shall see in these passages, is this. We tend to not assess our problems rightly. God's people misdiagnosed what the problem was in asking for a king. They decided to see their problems mechanically and not spiritually, right? And, and that's our story, isn't it? That, that we tend to see our problems as, as technical things that we can resolve, that we can fix. But we rarely see our problem as repentance. We rarely recognize that sin has caused havoc in our own lives and in our communities. And our greatest need is a need to repent. And so we cry out for new gimmicks, right? We cry out for new gimmicks instead of a new heart. Israel diagnoses her problem as political, and so the only solution they can have is a political solution. Their solution was to have, their solution was misguided. It was foolish. But God is exposing who they really are. He's showing them that they've been trying to hide their depravity, their own sin, their own corrupted hearts. But their request for a king shows their true colors. You see, before we judge them too quickly, we need to consider what Samuel tells us here. In verses 1, we're told that this man was old, and his sons had become these corrupt judges that had been appointed. It therefore makes sense why they would want a king, right? Makes sense. These guys are terrible. They're corrupt. So the elders come to Samuel and say, give us a king. From their perspective, they're not asking for a king in place of God, even though they want a means to compel him. But from God's perspective, he says, your request for a king, you are rejecting me. You're rejecting the control that I have over you. God's people were supposed to live in submission and faith in God, not demanding for a king. Again, what would a visible king do to Israel, right? It makes sense for them to ask for one. He would offer a stable nation, a stable and predictable political scenery, authority that they could see and, and ensure that there was a king. I mean, can you imagine trusting in a God who says, I am your God and I'm your king, and yet you cannot see the man who says he's your king? Doesn't make any sense, right? But that's Israel. They were supposed to trust in a God whom they couldn't see. But we need to realize that the problem, or the, it wasn't wrong for Israel to ask for a king. In fact, God had made provision for Israel to have a king. So what was wrong in their request? It was the motive. What was wrong was their heart. What was wrong was their selfish need and desire to have a king. What was wrong was that they imagined that they could find a better king, a king that could meet all of their needs apart from God, without God being their Lord. The king, they ask, is not a mere substitute. The king they're asking is, in fact, one who would replace God himself. And so their request was, was rebellious. It was selfish. It was cowardly. 
in its spirit since they sought a system that would remove their desire and their need for God. Think about us. Think about ourselves. Think about us who follow God and our passion for substitutes, right? That the idea of a king seems to be plausible, not with some of our, actually with some of our requests that might seem very logical to us when we make requests made known to God. Some things seem to be so perfectly right for us to ask, right? And they can be utterly godless. Things that appear to taste good, they appear good in our eyes, they appear good to us. In fact, someone once said that idolatry is so sophisticated even for us to understand. Idolatry is so sophisticated even for us to understand, yet nothing is hidden from the watchful eye of our God. What were they saying? Israel is basically telling God, we want to fit in, we want to blend in. We want to belong. We prefer to keep in step with the culture. Because, I mean, who wants to stand out in the middle of a perverse nation, right? Or culture? Why should we define success differently from how the world defines success? Why preach chastity? Why preach truth? Why seek justice why stand up for the immigrant while nobody else wants to do all those things? Why be different in this world for God's sake? Why stand to be distinct in how we think, in how we walk our life? They want it to blend in. You see, friends, our cries for give us a king echo our wanting to be like the world. It is us seeking false security from tangible, visible idols that might seem perfectly good to us. But if we don't look carefully, we will misdiagnose what our problem is. See, the reasoning for the elders of Israel continues to be heard in our today as we appeal for all these solutions to spiritual matters in our personal lives, in our communities, in our churches, in our schools. We want to replace God by thinking that our problems are merely, or rather, our problems are not spiritual. It's not about sin. It's not about our heart. And so what do we need? More money, more education, more policies, more politics, more diets, more medicine, more money, more of everything. But let me ask you a question. Where is God? How are we going to fix it? How are we going to fix our world? Racial tensions, coronavirus. Where is God? Where is repentance? So the first thing God's people do is misdiagnose their problem. The second thing that we need to notice in these verses is sometimes we don't look to God for help, but for what form of help God is going to use. We're more interested in the methods that God is using, right? We, we don't focus on deliverance on us. We dwell on the methods, what shape, what size, what ideas God has to deliver us. We trust those methods, but not God himself. We desire to direct how God is going to help us, how, he, how he's going to save us. See, the Lord responds to Israel's request, and he basically tells Samuel, give the people what they want. They've asked for it. Give it to them. See, I don't believe that this is a contradiction that God tells Samuel, give the people a king because that's what they want. It's actually not. Because from God's perspective, they are rejected, they're rejecting him. And so God is actually putting things into perspective. Give them what they want so that I may show them that they are truly rejecting me. 
But then Samuel is told to warn the people, warn them as to what is going to happen to their life once they reject me and seek to have a king but me. The people's refusal to listen to Samuel is what incriminates them. And so Samuel spells out what it's going to mean when they have a king apart from God. He says, he will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take your property. Basically he's saying a king is going to cost you. See, ancient Near East kings were, were supposed to be responsible for social justice, for national security, for doing all these things that the people of God were desiring. The downside of it was that the royal bureaucratic institution grows and always needs to be subsidized, right? And so as it gains more power and more power, it can easily become oppressive. To put it bluntly, the king will take and you will serve. It's as if he had said, think of your sons, think of your daughters, the king will take them. And your property does not belong to you. Your crops, he will take them as well. Ever heard of taxes? Ever heard of slavery? See, the monarchy that they so desire will only lead to failure and oppression. Only submitting to God, only submitting to the true king, to his rule, will God's people survive. See, why am I pointing us to that? We need to realize, as Paul reminds us in, in Romans chapter 1, that there's a, a profound link between human sin and punishment. What does Paul tell, tell us in Romans 1? That, is, that the desire to be free from God's rule is always punished by the experience of being given out to godless ways. That the moment we choose that we're going to live for another king and not God, we are going to find ourselves in trouble. We become slaves to sin, and when we yield to it, sin continues to take and take and take and we keep on serving it until it destroys us in the holy judgment of God. See, the true king instead is the one who welcomes us into his rule so that we may submit to him. Instead of tyranny, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He comes to serve. See, the people were not coming to listen to Samuel here. For guidance. They were coming to dictate their own plans. They had a plan. Give us a king. We know a better king is better for us than God. Again, before we judge them too quick, do we not do the same thing in our own lives? We always think that we can do a better job of governing ourselves, don't we? I can rule my life. Self-governance. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, in what ways are we seeking the methods of this world? Man-made methods, whether they're political systems or earthly kings, to save us. These methods may not be wrong in themselves, but our eyes must be on the King, King Jesus. So we misdiagnose our problems. We look to the methods and not to God. And finally, we realize that sometimes God grants our foolish requests, not as a favor to us, but to show us of our need of Him. See, sometimes God does grant us our foolish requests. God's greatest kindness sometimes is not in answering our prayers exactly as we desire them, but to show us how much we need Him. See, God's intention in giving them what they wanted was intended to teach them a humbling lesson that hopefully, probably would lead to future repentance and restoration. We all know Israel's story, right? They will have kings. They're about to install king and appoint him as their king. But how is that going to play out in their life? Not so good, right? 
So, but Samuel did not probably anticipate God telling him, obey what they're telling you. Listen to them. Three times God repeats, give them what they want. But their request was a punishment on their foolish, faithless request. They will suffer the consequences of their rebellion. That God's relenting is not a sign of blessing, but of their discipline, of their chastisement. The warning couldn't be more grim for God's people, even though it falls on deaf ears. They still say, no, absolutely no, we want this king. And God tells them, your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But what do the people want? They really wanted someone that they could see. They wanted a military king to fight their battles. They wanted someone to ensure national security. But notice, even though their desire is to escape God's rule, there was no escaping God's rule. He was always going to be their king. As I mentioned, Saul is going to become their king. But guess who appoints Saul to be their king? God. What a reminder for us, right? We can run from God's, or we can try to run from God's rule. But there is no place to hide. God is still going to reign supreme over our lives. See, God grants them a sign of his grace. Even though they're faithless, they are undeserving people that are being unfaithful. But instead of seeking a servant king who pointed them to God, they wanted a military king that they could see. It's a show. But that's our story. It's, it's our story in many ways that we're so attracted to that which looks pleasing. Saul, we're told, was this handsome man that was pleasing to the eye. That's the kind of king that they wanted. And in the same way as we, as we, as we cry out for, you know, to God to give us a king, it's the same thing that we look to. We're attracted to the glory that human leaders can give to us. And we forget the glory that is in God. Because there is a true king who is worth having. But he's different from what Israel wanted. He's not a king of this world. He's a king who is able to give us true security. True peace. True justice. He's a king who doesn't take, but he gives. A king who comes not to be served, but to serve us. See, the, the people wanted a king, but they did not want a savior. Which is our story as well. They were crying for a king who would come to solve their problems as we usually do. But not one who would save them from sin and death. See, as I told you the story about this pear tree that does not bear tree, we are also tempted to want the kingdom without the king. We desire the fruit of the kingdom without a king. We want justice. We want peace. We want unity. We want all those things, and they are good. But I fear that sometimes we reject the one who alone is just. I fear that sometimes we want those things apart from the one who is able to grant us perfect peace and unity. See, friends, the only way you will experience true peace and justice in your own heart and in our communities is by submitting to the only true king who is able to grant us all those things. It's only by submitting to the true king who is working to restore all things to himself. And I, I think reading this passage that we just read is like looking into a mirror. This story does reveal our hearts and how we easily mis misplace our trust. It reveals our desire to seek kings that rule over us in the wrong places. Yet we have a true king. A king who has committed himself to us to rule our hearts. 
And so I submit to all of us this morning that our desire to have all those things need to come before God and we need to confess our misguided pursuits of earthly kings, hopeless kings that will not satisfy. Our desire to control God's help, we must confess that. And our desire to think that we can approach God in our own terms because we cannot do that. And instead we need to come and submit ourselves to the true king. The king who comes to give who does not take. The king who lays down his life for us. Who dies on the cross for our sin. Freeing us from the guilt of our sin. Who gives us his kingdom. Who tells us that we can come to him and enjoy the abundance of all his blessings. And instead of taking he says come to me. Because my blessings will flow to you as far as the curse has been found. He's not just a king. He is the king of kings. He's not just a lord. He is the lord of lords. He appoints, he disposes, he destroys, and he raises up kings. That's a king that's worth our submission. The question to us is this. Are we going to bow to him now or wait until his return when every knee shall bow before him? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you are the true king who comes not to take but to give. That you have completely given yourself to us by dying on the cross for our sin. By saving us and delivering us so that our empty pursuits of kings that don't satisfy will be shown to be futile. But so that we may turn to you, a true king who is able to rule over all the affairs of our life. May that be true of us. May that be true of my dear friends here at Covenant College. For your glory, we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.